This podcast was recorded in a Zoom meeting with the Hartford Street Zen Center Sangha. Please visit hszc.org for information about how to join our online programs or to make a contribution. We depend on the generosity of our members and supporters, especially during this challenging time. Thank you. It's often the turning point for me. It's the place where uh, my practice is... uh, and my vows are really sort of uh, put to the test. I often feel like um, every time I think that I've got, I'm going along smoothly, I'll uh, run into uh, difficulties when, uh, when I think, oh, I'm doing okay. And then all of a sudden I'll find myself in conflict with someone. So I'm gonna start with two, pe- two readings. First, uh, from the great Zen master Rumi, um, even though he was a Sufi. There's a, he, he wrote a poem called The Water Wheel. Stay together, friends, do not scatter and sleep. Our friendship is made of being awake. The water wheel accepts water and turns and gives it away, weeping. That way it stays in the garden, whereas another roundness rolls through a dry riverbed, looking for what it thinks it wants. Stay here, quivering with each moment, like a drop of mercury. Uh, The other piece I wanna read is from uh, Lama Rod Owens, in the book Radical Dharma, he says, the Sangha is important because it can reflect the things that we're missing, that we're bypassing. When I talk about Sangha, I talk about it as the space where we're coming into contact and there's conflict. This conflict isn't normal conflict. It isn't worldly conflict because when we enter into sacred community, we have a different obligation we see our interactions as pointing us back to things we need to look at more closely. We're being reminded to practice patience and kindness, practice vulnerability. I think that, um, you know, when we first find ourselves in coming into practice, we come in with a lot of our own history and our own baggage and our own sort of issues. And we think, oh, I'm gonna go to this place and I'm gonna meet a whole bunch of other spiritual people and they're gonna be wonderful. And I'm gonna be able to join them and uh, this will be home. And I think that that that's a really great and lovely way to come into spaces Um, But the problem is, is that we are people. And so we run up against people. Um, I spent 10 years living at San Francisco Zen Center. And, uh, and it was something that always sort of, you could almost, uh, you could almost count on it somewhere around the second week of somebody uh, being there. Uh, they would sort of go through this phase where they realize like, oh, wait, these are all just people. And, you know, the bathroom's not as clean as I want it to be, 
or you know, they don't clean up after themselves the way I think they should or whatever. Uh, and I remember when I went to Tassajara, um, one of the really amazing things from, you know, and by that point I had been practicing in community and living in community for a long time. And I thought, oh, I'm gonna go to Tassajara and it's gonna be this really deep and meaningful practice. And, uh, and then I just realized like, oh wait, I'm still here. <laughs> all of the things that I thought I might be getting away from, all of the habits of mind that I create for myself, I've just brought with me into this whole other environment. And I think that's what happens when we, when we come together as people. We think that uh, it somehow will short circuit our own uh, shortfallings and, and that we will be able to somehow get around and uh, find a way to just feel good. And I think a lot of us come to Buddhism specifically because we're suffering and we think, oh, well, I want to not suffer. I want to feel good. And then we get a little surprised when we realize that sitting meditation and being together in, in Sangha, that the Dharma doesn't uh, really, that's not what it's for. That's not what happens. What we really get is we get to see our suffering in a whole new way. We come together in community and we see the ways we make ourselves suffer. We see the ways that conflict arises. We see the ways that we fall short of our own inner workings and our own inner intentions. We, we see the ways in which The world is the world. And it doesn't stop being the world just because I'm practicing. Um, because I sit and look at a wall for a while or uh, hang out with other people. And so what do we do about that? How do we understand when we start to realize that the practice is different than what I thought it was gonna be. And the fruits of practice are different than what I think they are. And that people are just people and I'm still me. You know, I think that sometimes I wake up and I realize like, oh wait, I'm still me. I still get angry, I still swear too much. I still, you know, some days I wake up and I just really don't want to be uh, a part of what I see happening. And then I sit down. And I take a deep breath. And I settle in the midst of all of these things. I find a place of stability through the practice that I get to just be able to turn towards those moments of conflict, that I can turn towards those shadow sides of myself, that I can turn towards the suffering that I see. I can turn towards your shadows. 
that I can find myself right size. Because I think that we assume that we know what the problem is. And oftentimes I'm labeling the wrong thing as the problem. Oh, my anger is the problem. Your treatment of me is the problem. The evil people in the world who are doing these horrible things are the problem. But oftentimes I find that when I sit down and I slow down and I take a deep breath, I start to see what the real problem is, which is my own relationship to it, my own ideas about how it's supposed to be, how I want it to be, how I think you're supposed to be, how I think I'm supposed to be. When I start looking at that, when I start just having the experience that I'm having when I'm having it, when my brokenheartedness isn't the problem, but the fact that I want to protect that brokenheartedness, the fact that I don't want to be vulnerable, the fact that I don't want to feel this stuff, that's the problem. and I can loosen my grip. You know, I, um, when I left San Francisco Zen Center, there was a lot of suffering that I was feeling and a lot of anger that I was feeling and I had a lot of problems and difficulties. I felt mistreated and misaligned and, um, and that bled over into my practice a little bit because I really had a difficult time thinking like, okay, there's this fracture in my idea about the Sangha. There's uh, this place where I'm supposed to take refuge isn't the place I thought it was. And it took me a long time to figure out that the practice is still the practice. And that Sangha is always there right at hand. It took me a long time to figure out that my ideas about something and the thing itself are not the same thing. You know, I think it's really easy to fall into um, a bit of a depression because we're so separate right now. And, and, you know, I go weeks without seeing anyone in the flesh and I don't think I've had a hug in nine months. Uh, I live alone now. And, uh, and so every, all of my interactions are basically online. And it took me a while to realize that that doesn't limit my connection. 
It doesn't limit my ability to tap into all of the things I love about the Sangha. Sitting here this morning, I could feel us as one unit. I could feel the interconnectedness of our being. Just as much as when I sit in the room with you all. My ideas about the thing and the thing itself are never the same thing. I heard a story once where Suzuki Roshi said that the purpose of Sangha is to be a river and we're rocks and the way that the uh, river shapes the rocks. Slowly over time, they begin to toss and turn until they're smooth. Now, I don't know whether or not he actually said that or I maybe even uh, heard it wrong, but uh, to me, that's a really wonderful idea. That's a really wonderful uh, encouragement because I, that's how I want to be in the world. I feel that's how I'm called as my vows. To let the world smooth me out a little bit. to maybe not have so many sharp corners that prick other people. And the closer I get to seeing things as they are, the closer I get to being in those moments of connection where I can let go of my idea of the thing. I can let go of my ideas about myself as a priest, as a chaplain, as all of these things that I think I am. And just see, oh, how do I wanna be in the world today? What's an appropriate response here? What does this moment ask of me? But the only way I can get there is by also looking at these places where I'm a little more jagged, these places of difficulty. I, can, I have to look at my ideas about myself. I have to look at my ideas about you and my ideas about how I think you're supposed to be. My ideas about what it means to be part of a group of spiritual people trying to do their best. I have to be willing to be uncomfortable. I also have to be willing to own my part of things, to recognize, well, what's my participation here? What did I put in to this? Not as some way of 
self-flagellation, not as some way to beat myself up, but as a way to look honestly at my own choices, to take responsibility for my life and to make decisions about how I wanna do it better next time. One of the greatest gifts I ever got was learning how to apologize. in a genuine, in a real sort of way. I think that we are a healing community. I think that we are able to come together. I think that we are uh, way more than the sum of our parts. but we have to work a little bit to get there. We have to stop trying to feel better and to connect to feeling what's actually is. Stay together, friends. Do not scatter and sleep. And friendship is made of being awake. The water wheel accepts water and turns and gives it away. And I think I will stop there and invite you to ask questions uh, either about what I said today or maybe you just need to talk and connect to everyone. Maybe you just wanna see what it's like to join the Sangha today. Shindo. Good morning, Daigon san. Um, it's good to see you. Uh, I really appreciate this talk. I found it really helpful. Um, I've, I've been going through kind of a similar process recently. Uh, I've realized that I've been kind of trying to find the right way of engaging with people, with um, society and with the sangha and all that um and if i could just find the right place uh from which to speak and relate to people then it would all fit and um 
I've been realizing that there is no such place and <laughs> there has to be um, there has to be freedom of movement and ability to relate to all different kinds of people in different ways. And um, I need to give up that search. <laughs> so yeah, thank you. I really appreciate that. And I wanna say, um, is it okay if I respond first? Okay. Um, I wanna say that the right place is the place where you are. My search these days is to find my place. You know, Norman Fisher wrote a really great book called Taking Our Place. And it's about emotional maturity, but I love the title. Because I'm today, I really am looking at what's my place? And can I just own this place? Right? In this body, in this moment, with all of the history and all of the stuff, can I just take my place? Because I find that if I can do that anywhere I respond, if I respond from that place, it's the appropriate response. But it takes practice to find my place because it's not that my place stays stagnant. Right? My place is constantly moving because that's the way the you know, time and space work. <laughs> so um, there is a right place. It's inside your own skin bag. And the practice keeps bringing us back to that, right? Like we sit down on the cushion and we're looking at our posture and we're paying attention to our body and we're taking our, finding some physical sensation that we can bring our concentration to over and over and over again. Um, I think as a trauma survivor, as a queer kid, I did not understand how to be in my own body. Slowly, I'm getting there. Um, yeah, thank you very much. Thank you. Ron. I was scratching my eye before. Um, <laughs> uh, it's always refreshing to hear you speak. So thank you for being here. Um, it's always, I always hear something practical and that seems to apply to things I'm going through, uh, perhaps like Shindo. Um, and yeah, I just wanted to appreciate you being here. Thank you very it's much. Helpful. This is as good for me as it might be for anyone else. <laughs> Max. Yeah, thank you for being here in your talk. This is unrelated, but I'm very impressed by your rakasu. Do, do you have a story behind that or can you talk about that? So this is my, the ever famous rainbow rakasu, which was sewn for me by the sewing teachers at San Francisco Zen Center that I got um, as a gift for taking care of Blanche Hartman at the end of her life. Okay. Uh, and, and it's very deeply uh, personal and important to me. Um, the only other one that I ever wear is the one that I got from Hartford Street Zen Center uh, that Mio was kind enough to write on the back of, which was made from the scraps uh, 
and patches on Philip Whale and uh, Okesa. Oh, wow. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, hi. Hi, Larry. Are you Larry or Chuck? I'm Chuck, yeah. <laughs> you mentioned about learning to apologize. Um, how did you do that? I mean, what happened? Unless you don't want to talk about it. No, I, um, I, I love talking about it. I, so uh, what happened was, is I started to see my own shortcomings and I started to see the way that I, um, uh, I have a definite sort of aggressive anger problem and I needed to figure out how to be responsible for that. And I think that in American culture, we're often taught that um, apologies are, I'm sorry for how you feel. Uh, I'm sorry for, they're sort of non-apologies, right? Like I think that um, the patriarchy and, and capitalism and all of those things uh, and this individual, uh, this tendency towards individualism uh, makes it so that we learn how to apologize in, in this really sort of weird uh, non-apology kind of way. And, um, and as I started to notice that, I, uh, I came across a kindergarten teacher who had written this article about how to teach kids to apologize. And, um, and it's, it's really wonderful because what it does is it, it, in a really sort of simple way, describes what I think are genuine apologies, which is first off, you have to actually feel bad and be willing to feel uh, that you, you're wrong. Uh, and then you, the, the, the apology itself has sort of four pieces. Uh, one is that you actually say, I'm sorry. Um, there's so many ways that we uh, will circumvent the actual saying of, I'm very sorry. The second thing is, is to take and, and focus on what it is that you're sorry for. What was the action that caused the conflict? Um, so the place where I tend to still have to apologize a lot is often with customer service people. Um, because I get frustrated and I get angry and I, I lash out. And at some point I always find myself, when I do that, having to, to one, call them back and say, hey, I just spoke to so-and-so and, um, and I was really inappropriate with them. And I just wanted to apologize and say that my language was wrong and that I'm sorry. So first, you know, and it's not, and there should never be a but there, but I was frustrated or, I, you know, like I think that we often will add on to it this but. And in spiritual circles, in Sangha, oftentimes we also, and especially if we're in positions of power, um, it's easy for us to fall into this habit of thinking that I need to turn it into a teachable moment for the other person. So, you know, instead of apologizing, I'll, I'll like try to focus on, oh, you know, isn't that a great opportunity for you to practice? 
Um, so so it's, it's an apology, the actual saying of the words, I'm sorry, it's taking responsibility for, for my actions and what I did and naming it in my apology. The second piece is to talk about what it is that you're gonna do differently in the future. To say, oh, and I'm gonna try really hard, I'm gonna, I'm gonna not scream at people or I'm gonna not swear when I'm on the phone to customer service people. <laughs> and then finally, it's to ask for forgiveness and ask if they need something from you in order to reach forgiveness. And what's interesting is, is that I can still be right in that moment. It's not that, it's not about one of us being right and one of us being wrong. And it's not even about my behavior. It's, it's like the impact of recognizing that my behavior has impact on other people and taking responsibility for that. So my point may be valid and important and appropriate, but the impact of how I go about being right hurts other people. So sometimes, you know, we make choices and it creates suffering for other people, but it's the right choice to make in that moment. And we still have to apologize because we, it had an impact that wasn't appropriate. So these four pieces, so, and, and I think it's really amazing when people ask you, and what, what would make this better for you? Do you need anything from me in order to feel better about what transpired? Do you need anything from me in order to forgive me? I, it's, it's amazing to be on the receiving end of that. And it's amazing when you actually ask that question of another person that you know you hurt. Um, and I learned it from a kindergarten teacher who was teaching it to five-year-olds. Uh, so, uh, and realizing I never got taught that. Did that answer your question? Oh, that's great. Perfect. Thanks very much. Cato. I also just wanted to say I appreciate you bringing up that of apology. I think it's a, I agree with you. I think it's a powerful practice. And um, you know, in addition, the only other additional thought I was thinking about when you were talking about it is, is here, Dharma friend, Jordan Thorne, who used to tell me often, let them be right. <laughs> yeah. I, I think that that's a really important piece, right? Like, um, but I think we have to be really careful. It's a double-edged sword. Because I think that as, as queer people, as, um, as human beings, as, as it depends on uh, it depends on a lot and and sometimes we use let them be right as a way to circumvent our feelings about things to circumvent our suffering to bypass the actual labor necessary to feel our feelings I love Jordan and I miss him very much and um, and we had a lot of great conversations and um, so thank you for bringing him in the room. Um, and I wanna say, I learned a lot about 
how to, about, in trying to figure out a way to be in relationship with my family who are uh, as far distant from me as uh, in personality wise and the things that are important as possible. Um, you know, I'm a fairly leftist leaning, um, And, and it was really difficult for me because also my family weren't really interested in sort of understanding queerness or uh, all of the things. And, and, um, and I couldn't figure out how not to argue with them, how to not fight with them. And then one day I realized like, I could just not fight with them. It doesn't mean I have to appreciate or accept their racism or homophobia or conservative nature or blaming of poor people or whatever, I can, I don't have to participate in what I feel is uh, harmful, but at the same time, I don't have to argue with them. I don't have to fight with them. And, um, and so that translated to, um, <laughs> I often will just get up and walk out of a room. <laughs> and as I would do that, what would, what's happened over time is that they, they tend not to bring those things forward in moments when I'm in the room. I don't say anything, I don't argue with, I don't try to make them feel bad because given all the causes and conditions of their life, of course they feel this way. Of course, this is what's real for them. This is what's true for them. These are the causes and conditions of their life. How am I gonna expect them to be otherwise? So to just, okay, you're right. And I'm going to go now. <laughs> yeah, I think that was, I do think that was the spirit in which Jordan was speaking. I definitely don't think he would have ever advised to be a doormat or to, um, you know, to give someone, you know, the approval to do something wrong when it's wrong. But I do think, yeah, I think that's what he was saying. And, and he was also saying on those little things that really aren't that important, that mm -hmm. are extra tension for the sake of tension or pounding your chest to be right. Maybe just don't. <laughs> and I thought <laughs> you're talking about with your family that he was suggesting. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Hojo san, I know you're not on camera, but are you there? Do you want to say anything? Happy holidays. <laughs> here, here are our Christmas presents. I said, you are our Christmas present. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you, Ojo-san. The feeling is very mutual. And uh, if I haven't told you recently, I adore you and love you and think you're awesome. <laughs> Anyone else there in the Zendo have anything to say? Thank you, Daigon.
I want to close just by saying um, thank you all for giving me refuge today. Uh, my ideas about what refuge looks like and what it feels like are vastly different these days. Uh, but I noticed that whenever I go to look for it, it's right at hand. And so thank you very much. <laughs>